TED Audio Collective. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Hello there, I'm Chris Anderson. Welcome to another episode of The TED Interview. Well, I think we can agree that people are hurting right now in so many ways, from the fear and financial losses of the pandemic to the inequality that's growing ever more obvious before our eyes. You would think that in a moment like this, philanthropy could make a really big difference. But for that to actually work, for that money to help us rebuild a better world than we had before, we may need to radically rethink how it can be put to its best use. There are implications here for big foundations, for those who donate to them, for all of us, frankly. Today's guest is here to explain. Darren Walker is the president of the Ford Foundation, a major international social justice philanthropy with more than $10 billion in assets. In that role over the last seven years, he supported many, many initiatives to battle poverty, inequality, and injustice. He's also played an outsized role in championing culture and the arts. Darren himself has a remarkable story of upward mobility that, as he points out, is becoming ever harder for people to replicate. So how do we reverse that? Well, Darren shares many insights about the power of discomfort, about how, as we try to give our way to healing, we can move from token measures to real transformation, and about which kinds of investments will truly help us build back better. This interview was recorded before a live virtual audience at TED 2020, which is now in its final week of an eight-week run. Before I dive into questions, first I thought we should give Darren a few minutes just to give us the lay of the land as he sees it. So without further ado, Darren Walker. Thank you very much, Chris. I'm really grateful and honored to be here. I have the privilege of leading the Ford Foundation, a foundation that has existed for 80 years. Foundations in America were really started by a man named Andrew Carnegie, who in 1889 wrote a seminal document, The Gospel of Wealth. In it, he laid out the tenets of American philanthropy that would be used by the great titans of industry and capitalism of the 20th century, from John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, Henry Ford, Andrew Mellon, all the way through to Bill Gates, Michael Bloomberg, and many others. And in his gospel, he said that the role of wealthy men like himself and Rockefeller in society was to 
give back, to use uh, their bounty and their wealth to, through charitable causes, uh, improve the lot of the common man, the poor, uh, the dispossessed and disadvantaged. That idea of philanthropy uh, remains with us. But I read a document by Martin Luther King about philanthropy in which he said the following, philanthropy is commendable, but it should not allow the philanthropist to overlook the economic injustice which makes philanthropy necessary. You see, Dr. King, unlike Andrew Carnegie, questioned the economic injustice, the very inequality that made their wealth possible. He challenged the wealthy to think about inequality and their complicity, indeed the complicity of many generous donors and philanthropists in creating economic injustice. Today, we live in an age of inequality. And if we are to build back better, we must reconsider philanthropy. We must consider a different kind of economy and capitalism. And the question for the wealthy, the privileged philanthropist is not, what do I do to give back? But what am I willing to give up? Because without we privileged, powerful, wealthy people acknowledging our complicity in creating and sustaining a system that is based on racism and the kind of capitalism that has generated in these last decades far too little shared prosperity. And so today, we in this country and around the world are challenged by a sense of hopelessness, which is the great threat of our time, along with climate. Because without hope, it is hard to imagine that we can have a democracy that is vibrant. In fact, hope is the oxygen of democracy. And we, through inequality and the economic injustice we see far too much of in America, are literally asphyxiating hope. Just as we saw the murder of George Floyd, the breath was taken out of his body by a man who was there to protect and promote it's a metaphor for what is happening in our society where people who are black, brown, queer, marginalized are literally being asphyxiated by a system that does not recognize their humanity. If we are to build back better, that must change. Thank you, Darren. These are powerful words. I'm curious, though, how this conversation can best lead to change. I mean, everyone's been shaken up by what's happened. 
In your conversations with people, let's say with the wealthy and the powerful, when you talk about their being complicit in the system and first step is to recognize that, is that effective as a rallying cry? Help us with the, with the language because it's, it's so sensitive right now, just whichever way you look at it, that people are sort of in some ways even being driven apart just by the very language in which this current situation is being framed. What's been your experience the last few weeks in how you've communicated with others on this? Well, I think the real challenge here is that many people are tired of having to constrain and contort their language so that privileged people can be comfortable. One of the things that must happen if we are to build back better is that we privileged people have to be uncomfortable. And I think some of the pushback that you're seeing is some people feeling just uncomfortable with the conversation, just as many people, many white Americans, have felt uncomfortable with the conversation about race. Let's just acknowledge that. I've had people say to me, why do you have to talk about inequality and race in the way? Isn't there a better pitch? Isn't there a better way? Uh, The meaning underneath that is really, can't we find a way to keep wealthy people and privileged people comfortable in this conversation? One of the realities is that in order for us to make progress, as John Lewis points out, we are going to have to get uncomfortable. And part of the challenge for we privileged people is that privilege buys you insulation from being uncomfortable. The whole idea of privilege is to uh, buy yourself the kind of uh, comfort, the kind of convenience that allows you to look away. And so I think for many Americans, many white Americans, the murder of George Floyd was the moment at which we will look back and say, we could no longer be comfortable with racism in America. And as a friend of mine said, she and her husband were heartbroken by what they saw because this is not the America they want to live in. But as I said to her, the hearts of African-Americans have been broken for four centuries in this country because of racism. And so we now all know, we now all have a sense of just how deeply rooted it is. So the language of how we talk about it is necessarily going to make privileged people who have benefited from a system that is racist and a culture of white supremacy. Just talking about that makes many people uncomfortable, but it will be necessary for us if we are to make progress. So talk about how to turn that discomfort you know, into action. You wrote a powerful op-ed in the New York Times a few days ago where you, you spoke about some of the things that we must be willing to give up. And you said you included in there the intricate web of tax policies that bolster our wealth, the entrenched systems in American colleges of legacy admissions, which gives a leg up to our children. 
And above all, the expectation that because of our money, we are entitled to a place at the front of the line. Explain that last part. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is in our system, we have created a fast track, a fast lane for the wealthy and the privileged. And the professor at Harvard, Michael Sandel, has written quite beautifully about this issue. And I just think it is a a part of the culture that the rich and the wealthy believe that they should always have a place at the front of the line. Always. Every line. We see that from the ways in which the wealthy uh, attend sporting events, attend the kinds of events that used to be where we all sat in the bleachers together. Uh, I took my goddaughter to Disneyland, and there was literally a fast track. If you paid more, your child did not have to stand in the hot sun for as long as those regular children did. And, And my point is just, we have to understand that this is a part of our culture. And because we believe in a meritocracy in this country, most people believe, and particularly most privileged, successful people believe first that the rules are generally fair because they're winners. And many of them have stories, and I've heard countless stories. My father was a bricklayer. My mother had a high school degree. I started with nothing. Well, you started as a white man with a degree from Harvard Business School in 1978. If you don't believe you had an advantage, then you're not living in the world that most Americans live in. Darren, tell us a bit about your own story. Well, my story is really punctuated by a nation that believed in poor, low-income kids who lived in urban and rural America. And that's how in 1965, uh, in a small town called Ames, Texas, population 1,200, a lady appeared in front of our little shotgun shack to tell my mother about the new Head Start program. So I was lucky enough to be in the first class, the inaugural class of Head Start in the summer of 1965. And I went to public schools. In fact, I like to remind uh, people that I have never attended a day of private education in my life. And I say that with great pride because increasingly in the places and spaces I find myself, I find fewer people with that same trajectory. And it concerns me. I had Pell Grants. I also had private philanthropy. So my journey was really financed by the public-private partnership that is this amazing web of support. What I worry about today, Chris, is that I felt when I was a little boy and growing up, even though I faced uh, racism and homophobia and lots of issues, um, I always felt like my country was cheering me on. I don't think today that little black boys and girls living in shotgun shacks or in housing projects in America's cities feel like America is cheering them on, that they are going to be able to get on the mobility escalator as I did. I was born in the bottom 1%. 
in a charity hospital in a very poor rural community in Louisiana. And I now find myself firmly as a part of the 1%, top 1%. So I've been on both sides of the inequality equation. And uh, I see that the difference is growing further and further apart. So help us understand that better. It sounds like what you're saying is that for a period of time and perhaps over the course of your life, there actually was real progress. There were these programs that allowed some people to benefit, to have at least a chance at a different kind of life. Was there progress? And and then has that been reversed? And if it has been reversed, what was what was the key cause of that reversal? Absolutely, there was progress. And I uh, remind people who... I hear say things like, um, we haven't made any progress since the 1960s on poverty, or why is uh, Black unemployment at the levels it was in 1968, and such data. Between 1965 and 1978, we made tremendous progress in this country. Rates of graduation from high school, college, our uh, wages, employment levels, for Blacks in America, were at all-time highs. We made massive, massive progress. And the data are clear on that. But something happened. And what happened was, in many facets of American life, whites saw the progress of Blacks as a threat. And so one of the things that immediately came under attack was affirmative action which was a policy to redress the uh, white supremacy that is baked in to the DNA of this country and our policies. Well, whites, some whites argued that that was reverse discrimination and took uh, a case to the Supreme Court that outlawed racial quotas. And since that time, we have been in this fight around this issue of reverse discrimination, which is an incredibly pernicious idea to turn uh, a policy that seeks to redress the white supremacy that is built into our nation, to redress that as itself a form of discrimination. But this was a huge boon for Blacks. I am a product of affirmative action. And I say that with pride because my country actually acknowledged the historical legacy, but we lost and have lost on that. And it is much more difficult now. But there were a number of interventions like that that propelled us forward. But what happened was a combination of a reversal of those policies and an economy that increasingly marginalized Black workers, and thirdly, at the same time, an ascent of a criminal justice system which proactively sought to incarcerate Black and Brown Americans at higher rates. And so we have seen this convergence of really pernicious, harmful clearly directed at African-Americans, these policies, these practices that have rendered us so marginal in the economy. And it is no surprise that we see people on the streets marching with the words, 
Black Lives Matter because it is clear in this country that Black lives have mattered less than white lives. You spoke there of the need for criminal justice reform, and you've played a big role in that. Um, Many people, Black and white, and actually left and right, have come together to seek different forms of criminal justice reform. But the actual doing of it ends up really hard. You you published this um, amazing piece last autumn called In Defense of Nuance, and you wrote this, and this connects to criminal justice reform in a minute. You wrote, in the boardrooms of businesses and museums, on committees and campuses, and everywhere in between, seeking common ground has been replaced by a retreat to our corners. Like fighting fire with fire, the fiery is met with fiery, and no one seems willing to turn down the temperature. Rather than building bridges and relationships based on mutual understanding or shared respect, this oppositional, nuance-averse posture rewards ideological purity and public shame, the very things that scuttle strong working relationships and incentivize people to dig in their heels. That was as eloquent an appeal to a kind of a bridging mentality of saying, look, situations are complex, we've got to listen to each other, work through complexity to resolve them. And yet this piece landed you in a a firestorm because one of the examples you gave in this was that as part of the drive to close down Rikers Island, which is this horrifying cesspit of um, a prison, that you would support for smaller prisons being built that were, you know, modern and um, collectively much, you know, smaller than Rikers Island. That was a compromise that got you in trouble. You know, activists said, no, you know, um, you, you, you can't support any extra jail building. Um, that there are far too many people in jail anyway. What, what's your take on that now? Do you still believe in the importance of nuance as we address these issues? I absolutely believe in the importance of nuance because the challenges we face as a society are incredibly complex. And it is important to uh, understand that if we are to solve these problems, we can't solve it by simply naming and shaming. I think we have to acknowledge that there are many opportunities to build allies and to create the forums for people who share a diagnosis. And it doesn't mean that you share an idea about what exactly the solution is. But there are a lot of people who uh, would share the diagnosis that our criminal justice system uh, is broken. So let's get all of those people uh, around the table. Uh, Let's not leave out any of those people. And then let's figure out how we go forward. And that's simply my pitch on all of these issues we're facing. One of the reasons, for example, The defund police movement has gained such currency when it did not have the currency that it had before George Floyd's murder is because for those who were saying, let's tweak around the edges and let's make uh, community policing the model, I think for many people, They've given up on that idea that you can actually uh, tweak around the edges 
um, that that maybe three years ago, two years ago, they might have been willing to negotiate to say tweak around the edges. But at this point, people are tired, people are exhausted, and they're angry and they're grieving, and it is all legitimate. And so the idea of defunding the police, which was a marginal, radical idea, is now mainstream and being considered as a way to reimagine a different kind of law enforcement. And and I believe that we're going to need that kind of thinking as we consider how to build back better. So let's take some questions from the community here. What are your thoughts on the best way for employees of big companies to hold corporate leaders accountable to honor their stated commitments to addressing systemic racism and inequality? Well, I believe there's going to need to be a reckoning in corporate America that is aligned with the reckoning in the rest of America that we have built into our mechanisms of promotion, of recognition with and, and success are barriers. And those barriers are often race-based, they're gender-based. The way we hold them accountable is two ways. One, that we come back a year from now, because the media will move on in some ways, but the media will be back and organizations whose work it is to actually hold them accountable, the nonprofits that work in the ESG space, the civil rights and racial justice organizations will hold them to account. The other thing that must happen is that we have to change the composition of corporate America. That is how we will hold corporations to account. So we need to move beyond the tokenism that exists on most public company boards and in private equity, because uh, we talk a lot about the Fortune 500. There are fewer public companies today because of private equity, and yet very few people understand uh, what is behind the curtain called private equity, where millions of Americans are employed, and there are literally thousands of small to medium-sized companies with boards. So these boards need to be diverse and we need to move beyond the paradigm of, oh, we've got a Black and a Latinx on our board. Check, check, let's move on. I've certainly been vocal in the boards that I'm on that we need to think very seriously about moving from tokenism to transformation. Let's take the next question. How have you changed how the Ford Foundation operates to address broad inequity, not in terms of the programs you support, but rather how you support them? Well, I do think that uh, we have changed in a number of ways in how we support organizations. First, most foundations provide project support. And uh, having run a nonprofit, I know that project support is basically a contract and is something that is often generated by the foundation. Um, And you're treated like a contractor and you're paid like a contractor, often with very little overhead. 
I have challenged this foundation uh, to a new way of funding. And uh, we have an initiative called our BUILD initiative, which is a general operating support, a five-year grant program. And we now are at 76% general operating support, having been 21% when I uh, came to the foundation. I believe providing general operating support is the most valuable, not only capital for investment, but also it is the way to endorse the leadership, the board, the mission, the vision, the execution. So I believe it's not about investing in projects or looking for the shiny new thing. Institutions are what sustain social change. Yes, Martin Luther King uh, was a great individual leader, a great social entrepreneur, but he had the SCLC as a mechanism, an institution. Gloria Steinem, Muhammad Yunus, I could go through the list of, of individuals the Ford Foundation has funded, but they had to have Grameen Bank and the Ms. Foundation. And the list goes on and on. So institutions should be invested in. That's first. Secondly, we have to get out of our way of conservative thinking about the capital we have at our disposal beyond the 5%. What are we doing with the other 95%? How do we think about deploying that? And Chris mentioned an initiative that we have led here that came out of our concern of what was happening, what we were hearing from nonprofits in the wake of COVID, in the wake of canceled fundraisers, dark theaters, donors pulling back on giving as a result of what was happening in March and April and May in the markets. So I, uh, with the trustees of the foundation, generated uh, this idea of issuing a social bond, a bond that would be a 50-year debt instrument that we would issue in the capital markets uh, for $1 billion, which would allow us to double our payout. So we would pay out for the next two years. We normally pay out $550 million or so. So we pay out over $1 billion for two years. And that it would primarily be general operating support to those key mission-critical institutions working on racial justice, inequality, uh, issues of reproductive rights and justice, human rights, the arts. And so... This is how we're working today. It's far from perfect. We must do better. But we, I believe at Ford, we are working at understanding that balance that legacy foundations have that I think is too imbalanced towards preservation rather than innovation. And I want to focus on innovation. And if we innovate well, then the preservation part will be taken care of. Let me just see if I understand the financial instrument here, because as I read, you got really favorable terms on this debt. You, you have these bonds that you have to pay back at a rate of about 2%. I mean, it's a lot lower than like big companies are paying on the, on the bond market. But some people might wonder, r- rather than having this debt that you have mm-hmm. to service over the next 30 or 50 years, why not just pay out the billion dollars? Mm-hmm. I mean, why should a foundation sustain its endowment forever Won't the future have a lot more wealth? Aren't the intense problems that could make or break the future with us now? Why not just pay out the money directly or more radically? Why not just have a 10-year plan to spend all of the endowment and put yourself out out of business? How do you think about that? 
Well, first, most foundations like Ford or Rockefeller can't put ourselves out of business. Our charters, we are established to exist in perpetuity. And while we probably could go to court or do something to break the donor's um, charter that established us, we do have that responsibility. And I would like to believe that there will be more funders in the future who talk about the way we do race and social justice. But we are far from there because many of these ideas actually challenge the very systems that create wealth in this country. So I don't believe at this point that taking money and what the investment uh, experts would say, reducing our liquidity uh, at a time when the markets are more volatile and we will need that liquidity to pay out grants, that that's a smart investment strategy if you believe that you do have some fiduciary responsibility to continue uh, into the future. The social bond idea allows us to do both, allows us to take advantage, as you said, Chris. This is a historic low in terms of rates. And for the Ford Foundation, this was the first ever foundation-issued bond of its kind. Um, We were oversubscribed. We sold uh, $1 billion of bonds. We had over $5 billion of orders from customers uh, of the various uh, underwriters. And so there was a pent-up demand. And because of that, as you say, we, we borrowed at basically 2.8% for 50 years, which is unprecedented. Um, but it shows you, I think, the hunger on the part of investors in investing, even at low rates, in a social bond, a a bond, the proceeds of which are going to be used to advance social justice in the world. That's amazing that there's $4 billion of unrequited demand there. Yes. had a $4 billion idea to, to help make America and the world a better place. There's funding there for it. This is, like- this is what I've been saying to my other friends in philanthropy, Chris. There was you know, $5.8 billion of orders, and we were only selling a billion. Hey, guys. There's a lot of capital out there that we could all put to work in philanthropy at very, very attractive rates. Let's do it. All right. Let's have another community question. How do we keep the arts, theaters, concert halls, and the vast web of culture that enlivens our cities and communities, how do we keep that a priority in this crisis? It's got to be a priority in this crisis because without the arts, we atrophy as a society, and not just in the cities, but in small towns as well, we have an obligation. So we are taking of the social bond that we are doing, uh, we are investing about $175 million of the $1 billion in the arts. I would also say uh, that we have to have our government do more And I think there needs to be, as we consider the next round, and there will be another round of support from Washington, the role of the arts is critical, and we should be advocating to ensure that that is uh, recognized in whatever large allocation of federal funds comes to the cities. I also think we are going to have to think creatively Donors can think creatively. In fact, I had a billionaire family in the UK who want to start an arts trust through an arts bond. 
we are all going to have to think creatively now in ways in which we never did in the past to address this issue of inequality and the way in which COVID is impacting us. We've got in higher education, the HBCUs who are um, living hand to mouth and the great Ivies, Harvard and Yale and Stanford, with literally more money than one could imagine. And of course, it costs a lot for excellence. But wouldn't it be interesting for a group of Ivies to issue a social bond of several billion dollars, the proceeds of which could be used to strengthen the HBCUs? How about uh, taking on that kind of inequality? How about in the arts, asking ourselves not just about Lincoln Center, where I am on the board, so I feel strongly about the importance of the Lincoln Centers and Kennedy Centers of the world, but quite candidly, Lincoln Center is going to be okay. It's going to be rough and tough, but it's going to survive. There are many arts organizations, particularly arts organizations uh, that are led by people of color, that uh, are uh, in uh, those communities that don't have endowments, boards who can put together emergency uh, fundraising campaigns, who don't have 12 months of operating cash flow. Those are the organizations I worry about um, being on the precipice. And while I'm going to fight for Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall, where I'm on the board, and the National Gallery, I've got to also recognize that those organizations vis-a-vis the larger arts community uh, are very privileged. And we've got to be focused on the gap between those who have and those who do not. All right. Thank you. Next question. How do we create empathy and motivation to give among those who have generational wealth and therefore have no experience of financial need? Well, actually, I find that people with generational wealth often are very generous and very empathetic. And uh, sometimes it's because they understand that they got the lottery. I mean, that they inherited this great wealth. And uh, whether it be guilt or whether it be a real noblesse oblige or whatever it may be, they do want to give. And I think many could give more. There is no doubt. I find it much more challenging among newly wealth people for whom this idea of I made the money and it is mine to decide what to do with and how quickly I want to give it away is really up to me to decide and how and to whom I want to give it to. And I want to give as little of it as possible to the government. Um, because I actually am in a better position to make decisions about how to solve uh, our nation's problems than the government. That ideology, I think, is very hard because it's the combination of arrogance and ignorance, which is a lethal, toxic combination that, regrettably, I find far too present in our society today. Just occasionally you find among those people, like if you're talking about entrepreneurs who've made a fortune, that kind of bold entrepreneurial thinking occasionally leads to bold philanthropic vision. So I've seen a mix there. Mm -hmm. Like I I wish people would do more because it's that mindset of just really thinking big and outside the box that 
could make a huge difference here and, and really take philanthropy to a new level. It could, but Chris, I also find among that group people who um, don't believe in institutions as a mechanism for change, who are looking for the new shiny silver object, who want a one or two year uh, big bang. And that's great. I'm not diminishing that. What I'm saying is I would not want that to become the overall sort of philanthropy mindset because um, chasing the shiny new silver object is not going to change how uh, race and racism is addressed systemically, uh, which is the only way we're going to be able to change things. Um, and, And so I'm all for projects. I'm all for prizes. But at the end of the day, long-term, long-range investment as philanthropy in institutions and people is what sustains change. And I'll give one final example on that. In 1963, the Ford Foundation funded the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the LDF, to sue the states of Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia for voter suppression, keeping blacks from the polls. I just approved a round of grants to the Legal Defense Fund to sue the states of Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia for voter suppression. Uh, There is no shiny silver object that is going to uh, keep um, the issue of racism in those states and keeping Black people from voting other than rule of law and the institutions who will hold elected officials to account. And that's an institution And it's going to always need to exist as long as there is racism baked in to our policies and our culture. And that's where my head is for philanthropy. And I know it sounds old fashioned and I don't sound cool. And but you got to have institutions in a democracy. Yeah. We'll take one more question. I think this may have to be the last, actually. Um, What are your thoughts regarding how willing our country is to fundamentally shift our systems in ways you suggest are required? I am very hopeful. I'm hopeful because I talk to more people, more privileged people especially, more powerful people who share the diagnosis, who two or three years ago probably didn't share the diagnosis, who two or three years ago could still find reasons to say, oh, it's not that bad. Or, I mean, I once had a billionaire say to me, why do you write so much about inequality. It's such a downer. Why don't you write about opportunity? This is America. We believe in opportunity. All of this inequality stuff is a downer. That same billionaire today is very comfortable talking about inequality and racism and the intersection. I had a CEO of a major Fortune 500 company who sent to the directors of this company my op-ed piece from last week, which called out the pernicious effect of stock repurchases, the share buybacks that have become uh, the main priority under the Friedman ideology. I challenged that and said, we need to reconsider that as a priority. I mean, for a public company director, Um, That was a pretty uh, radical thing to say, but it's true because my issue is that executive compensation is so distorted because of the ways in which these policies incent 
uh, share buybacks. And the fact that you've got a Fortune 50 CEO sending that to his board and his comp committee for conversation, I think, is a tiny, tiny indicator of what could be possible if we actually mobilize people and we don't allow this to subside. We keep at it. Sounds like, Darren, you really believe there is a possibility now that people from many different quarters can come together in this moment, recognize their privileges, recognize the depth of difficulty of some of these issues and work together with passion and with nuance to try and figure this stuff out and solve some of these problems. I mean, how, how are you on a typical day? Do you feel just dismayed about where we are? Or do, you, do you really see enough signs that we could emerge from this and get some things actually fixed? Well, Chris, on any given day, if you are on social media or have your telly turned on, it is impossible at some point not to be depressed, dejected, uh, despondent. But I am actually very hopeful, more hopeful than I've ever been, because I see for the first time in America a reckoning with a history we have been unable to collectively acknowledge as problematic, wrong, and that history is with us, as James Baldwin reminded us 60 years ago. It is with us. My favorite poet, Langston Hughes, almost a century ago, wrote, let America be America. And in it, he says, America never was America to me. But he goes on to say, in the final sonnet, but yes, oh, someday America will be. Langston Hughes was defiant and angry that as a black man in 1938, when he wrote that poem, he knew he was a second-class citizen in this country founded on ideals of justice and equality. But he was hopeful that someday America would be America. And I believe that we no longer can wait for that someday, that this generation should not have to say, someday in the future, America will be America. The time for America to be America is today. Okay, that's all for today. Thank you to our podcast team. Our editor is Grace Rubenstein. Our podcast producer is Kim Nedefane Peterser. And our production manager is Anna Phelan. Our show is mixed by David Herman. And our theme music is by Alison Leighton Brown. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.